showing them the light that you've shown us. God, I pray that you would help us to focus our eyes and our hearts on you. Help us to be more like you. Well, good morning. It's great to see you. Hope everybody's doing well. How are we doing? We're all right. Good. All right. It's okay to be okay. You guys can be good. Uh, it is great to be here with you guys this morning. Happy Mother's Day. So excited to be able to celebrate Mother's Day with you all. My mom's here today. I'm excited to be able to have her uh, with us and thankful that she's made the trip up from Morristown to hang out with us today. And so we just hope you have a great Mother's Day celebration and uh, that today just has God's favor all over it. And so if you will this morning, we're going to celebrate the reading of God's Word together as you turn to Galatians chapter 3. We love to celebrate God's Word together, and so we cheer and clap for that because it's really the most powerful thing in our lives, and so we want to take a a minute to celebrate that. But uh, as we read this, let me just kind of set the stage just a little bit. If you've missed the first couple of weeks of our series, you can catch up online on our website at gracekingsport.org and check out some of the messages there. Uh, But we would, uh, would... just been walking through this book of Galatians little by little. And so what we've seen is that the Galatian people are young believers in Christ. And uh, Paul had introduced them to salvation in Jesus, a salvation that comes by faith in Jesus and through the grace of God. But then after Paul left Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey, uh, some people came in from Jerusalem behind Paul who were known as the Judaizers. And the Judaizers came in with what we would call a false gospel or a counterfeit gospel. And they started telling these Gentile uh, Christians, so listen, it's great that you're a believer in Christ. We want you to be a believer in Christ. But you also need to be Jewish. And you need to follow the Jewish law and the customs of the Jewish people. That's how you come into faith in Jesus Christ. And so the Gentiles, the Galatians, uh, being kind of naive, being young in their faith, they just took this as gospel truth. And so they said, okay, well, that's not what Paul told us, but maybe there's something that he kind of forgot when he left, and so we're going to believe in this. And so they started practicing their Christianity through the lens of Jewish doctrine and through Jewish obedience to the law. And so as we get into this morning's passage, Paul's been calling them out and trying to say, that's not the gospel I preached to you. That's not, in fact, the gospel at all. Anything that runs counter to a gospel that's by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ is a false gospel. And you don't need to listen to that. And so when we get to chapter 3, here's how it starts in Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Christ was portrayed as crucified. So I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to find, uh, to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain, So again I ask, does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you by works of the law or by your believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now I want to start off this morning, uh, we're celebrating Mother's Day today obviously, so I just want to start off with kind of a parenting illustration. Uh, I did student ministry for about 15 years and part of the, the things that were great about student ministry is I did a lot of that before I had kids of my own. And so I got to watch and learn from other parents uh, how, to, how they raise their kids. And I learned some really great things from parents about how to raise some kids. And I learned some really not-so-great ways from parents about how to raise kids, right? And so you could just watch from a distance and kind of go, man, that person seems to have it all together. I like what they're doing. This person, uh, a little crazy, uh, may not take some of their things and put that into our practical life. Uh, But with parents, one of the biggest things that I learned, one of the most valuable lessons I learned and tried to implement is this, that parents 
the best parents I've seen have one specific quality that I find just to be great, this amazing quality. Okay, so what, what would you say, this is talk back time, I'm not your mom, you can talk back to me. Um, what would you say is something that parents have as qualities that you go, that makes a great parent? What's a great parenting quality? Love, all right. Patience, all right. What else? What? Humility, communication, good. What else? They have eyes in the back of their heads like, Mom, how did you do that? Oh, I know. All right. Uh, yeah, well, here's what I would say. And all of those are, are awesome, awesome qualities. Here's one thing that I always found to be just amazing, and I love this. That the best parents I ever was around are parents who ask great questions of their kids. Parents who ask great questions, who don't try to give their kids answers, but try to help lead their kids to find answers. And to think for themselves. They don't just say, no, you can't do that. They'll ask, why is that a bad thing for you to do right now? <laughs> What's wrong with you participating in that activity? Great parents ask great questions. And so um, in, in doing that, they help their kids come to their own ideas, own understanding. So uh, we would be at church on a Wednesday night doing our youth ministry stuff. And a parent would be standing there talking to me. And a kid might come up and say, hey, mom, can I go to Chick-fil-A with the group after church? We're all going to go out and get Chick-fil-A. And the mom, instead of just going, no, you can't, you have homework tonight, great mom would do this. Um, hey, didn't you tell me that you have homework tonight after church? And the kid would go, well, yeah, probably like an hour's worth of homework tonight. And the mom then would go, well... Do you think it's a wise decision for you to go and be at Chick-fil-A tonight if you've got an hour of homework? Well, you know, I mean, I, maybe not, it's not such a good idea. And then, you know, the mom might even say something like, um, by the time you get home from Chick-fil-A, how late do you think it's going to be when you finish your homework? Gosh, you know, that's probably going to put me at around 11, 11.30, and I've got to get up early for school tomorrow too. And Well, do you think it's a wise thing to do with your time tonight to go to Chick-fil-A and hang out with the youth group if you've got an hour's worth of homework? And the kid would just turn to his friends and go, hey, guys, I can't come to Chick-fil-A tonight. Um, I just don't think that's a good idea, right? And the mom would just be smiling. And you're like, you go, girl. You just nailed that thing, right? And so you're just like, way to go, mom. That was an awesome, awesome idea that you just asked questions to help your kid get to that place where they made a decision for yourself and you didn't just say, no, you can't. And so what we're going to see this morning in Galatians chapter 3 is that Paul behaves very much like this with the Galatians. Here's a group of infant believers and as he sits down and he talks to them and he knows they're doing something wrong, he knows they're following a counterfeit gospel, he knows they've bought into something that's a lie. And instead of just chastising them and saying, you idiots, what is wrong with you? He starts asking them questions. And so we're going to watch what Paul does this morning. We're going to see how he does that. Now, to be honest, Paul does chastise them throughout the letter. And to start off with, to get their attention, he is going to call them idiots. In fact, look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. You foolish Galatians, all right, that's a good starting point for any sentence, right? You bunch of morons, what are you doing? And so Paul's looking at them going, you foolish Galatians. Now this word foolish, it really means this, and if you're taking notes this morning, uh, you can do it a couple of ways. If you want to do the notes on the back of your bulletin, there's also a place on the Bible app, the YouVersion Bible app that you can follow along with us. Go to events and you can keep up with us there live. But here's what the word foolish means. It means unwise. That they showed a supreme lack of, of understanding. And then when Paul talks to the Galatian people and he says, you foolish Galatians, he's going, you guys are so unwise. You've bought into something that's false. You're showing this unbelievable lack of understanding about what the true gospel is. And Paul knows that they don't understand the doctrines that they started to embrace and that they don't know that this doctrine of following Jewish faith and customs and law is going to lead them not to salvation, but to death. If you look at chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says this, 
He says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it's written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. And we talked last week about the fact that the Galatian, or the, the Jewish people, when Paul went back to ask in the, at a council in Nicaea about saying, do they have to obey the law? They basically came to a point where they said, none of us have been able to follow the law fully. Why are we going to put that burden on the Gentiles? As Jews, we've had the law our entire lives and we never were able to keep it all the way. We couldn't do it. So why are we going to ask a bunch of Gentile people who don't even know what the law is to follow a set of rules that they can't possibly keep either? And so Paul says, you guys are foolish. This is going to lead to death. Anything that leads away from faith in Jesus for salvation is a foolish doctrine. If you can't get to the place where you say salvation is by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and that's it, then you've bought into a foolish doctrine, a counterfeit gospel. And so Paul's pointing this out to them. And he goes on and he asks a question. This is not even really the first of the four questions we're going to look at in a minute. But he says this. He says, who has bewitched you? You foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? And that word bewitched, uh, it, the Greek word that they use there is probably, the best we can tell, is probably connected in origin with a Latin word. And it's a word that we get our derived English word, fascinate. And so Paul's looking at him and going, What's fascinated you so much that it's pulled you away from this gospel of grace and faith that you think this is so cool now? That obedience to the law is what you need to do. Who's bewitched you? Who's fascinated you? Anybody like magic tricks? I love magic tricks. I wish I could stand up here this morning and just do the phenomenal magic trick that will blow your mind. I'm not good at them, so I don't. Uh, I would look stupid and you would laugh at me. And so I'm not going to do that. But magic tricks I love. My favorite kind are when you see guys on the street that are performing magic tricks just right in front of you. Like not on a big stage where you can't tell what's going on and maybe they've got some you know, million dollar illusion trick that they're doing. But when they're right in front of you with a deck of cards and they do something right under your nose that just blows your mind. And at the end of the trick, you're just fascinated by it, right? You're just going, oh my gosh, I can't even believe that. How in the world did you do that? That is incredible. And really what makes a great magic trick is somebody who has great sleight of hand. Somebody who can make you see something that you're paying attention to over here on this side while they're doing something over here on this side that you didn't pay attention to. And what's really completing the magic trick is something that was outside of your view because you were looking at this thing over here that was meant to draw your attention in and get you so they could fascinate you with what was really going on on the other side. Because this is fascinating that you've allowed somebody to come in and take away from this great gospel message that, that salvation is by grace and through faith in Jesus. And what they've done is they've come in and they've got you to look over here. They've gone, look at this, check this out, watch this. It's like, squirrel, where did it go? You know, like, you got sidetracked, you got fascinated, you got distracted. And he goes, you guys have bought into something that's not true. The, the Judaizers had bewitched the Galatian people with a counterfeit gospel by getting them to take their eyes off the true gospel and focus on something entirely false. And that's that people need to obey the law in order to be saved. And so Paul says, before your very eyes... Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. You foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Why does he say that? Paul wants to help the Galatians put their eyes back on the truth by defending his teaching that the one and only way to have our sins forgiven and embrace life is by believing in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And he says, if you don't believe in those things, you're not going to be with Christ. And so here's a question. 
If obeying the law was sufficient for salvation, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? If obedience to the law, if you could just follow the law and do it well and be perfect about it, why did Jesus need to die? Paul even kind of says that. If you go back to chapter 2, starting in verse 19, he says, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live for Christ. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. He said, if you could get there through the law, Jesus doesn't need to die a horrific death on the cross. But because of the law and obedience to the law won't get you to God, Jesus had to come and die in your place. He had to make a way for you to have a relationship with God by taking your place, the punishment you and I deserve. Jesus took that on the cross. Now, Jesus lived fully obedient to the law. In fact, He's the only person on planet Earth in the history of mankind that ever completely followed the law 100% to the letter. So if it had been able to find our salvation through the law, here's what Jesus should have done when He finished His ministry. He should have gone, okay guys, you've watched me live in front of you for three and a half years. I've been teaching, I've been ministering to you, I've been doing all these things, and here it is. I have been following the law my entire life. You've seen it. This is how you do it. That's the model. Now you guys go and do that. Just do what I did. Follow the law. Take it completely, 100%. Don't mess up. Don't screw up. And I don't have to die on a cross. If obedience to God had come through following the law, Jesus would not have had to die. But because the law was never intended to bring salvation to us, Jesus went to the cross in order to take the wrath of God on Himself and to make a bridge from our sinfulness to God's holiness and to unite us together so that we can have a relationship with Jesus. And so Paul's doing this. He's standing here and saying to all of these people, I've held up the gospel in front of you. He says, I... Uh, if you go back and look at that, before your very eyes, Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. He's talking about when He was there with them, teaching them, leading them to faith in Christ. He says, Christ was completely set in front of you. And His crucifixion mattered. He says, it was like I was holding up big block bold letters to show you. This is how you follow Christ. And it should have gotten your attention, but you've missed it. Uh, I've had the privilege a couple of times to go to football games at Dallas Cowboys Stadium in Arlington, Texas. Uh, we've got any, some Cowboy fans in the room. I know Sean's over here somewhere. He's a big Cowboys fan. And so, all right, good, two of you. Fantastic. Um, if you go into the new Cowboys Stadium, there's a jumbotron there that is massive. This really picture doesn't even do it justice, although that is pretty huge. It stretches from the 20-yard line on one side of the field to the 20-yard line on the other side of the field. It's 60 yards long. This thing will not fit in your house, okay? It's humongous. And when you go in and you sit down in front of that screen, it is impressive. In fact, uh, let me just give you a couple of statistics on this thing. It goes from the 20-yard line to the 20-yard line, 60 yards long. Uh, each of the two screens, one on this side, and if you were looking at the other side of the stadium, there's another one on the other side. Each of the screens weighs 1,000, uh, excuse me, 1.2 million pounds. Each screen weighs 1.2 million pounds. Listen, if that thing ever falls, everybody's going to die. Uh, the Cowboys will not have a team left. Uh, the cost of that screen, when they built the new stadium, billion-dollar stadium, the cost of the screen was more than the original Cowboys stadium cost to build. Right? This thing is massive. It is huge. Anybody in the house got a 52-inch TV or bigger? 
It's okay. I, I'll try not to covet if you raise your hand. All right, a couple of you do. We're coming to your house for the Super Bowl this year, John. All right, everybody's invited to John's house to watch the Super Bowl. If you have a 52-inch TV or bigger, listen to this. It would take 4,920 52-inch TV screens to make one of those. This thing is huge. Now, if you're sitting in Cowboy Stadium, you're watching a football game, and something flashes up on the Jumbotron, you don't miss it. It is there in living color, right? So now you've got the Fox Sports logo on the screen behind you. The O in the Fox Sports logo right there is taller than any two people in the room that would stand on top of each other. It's massive. The screen is humongous, right? And so Paul says, this is what it was like when I presented the gospel of Jesus Christ to you, that Jesus died on a cross he rose from the grave. I held it up in front of you. He didn't have a jumbotron, but he says, whatever I had to use for me at this point in time, I held it up in front of you as Jesus was clearly portrayed as crucified. Why did Jesus have to be crucified if you could just obey the law and become faithful to God? You can't do it. So stop trying. And so he says, I want to just hold this back in front of you, and I want you to see that what you're doing is wrong. So, as we get to the next section of the chapter, we're going to see Paul go into this parent mode now where he's going to stop chastising them a little bit. He's going to just start asking questions. And the questions, again, are meant to help them and to help us look at life and go, why would I do something that seems so dumb? Paul sees this as being really foolish. And so here's the next part in chapter 3, verses 2 through 5. Listen to what Paul says. He says, I would like to just learn one thing from you. And then like any good parent, the one thing turns into four questions. I just want to learn one thing. But i got like 20 questions to ask you to get there, right? He goes, I just want to learn one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning by the means of the Spirit? Are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain if it really was in vain? So again I ask, does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Now, with these questions... And within them, Paul's going to do something before we get to the basic root of the questions. He's going to talk about the Holy Spirit multiple times in these questions. You see Paul say, did you get the Spirit this way? Has the Spirit been involved this way? What's going on with the Spirit? We call this the Spirit of God or the Holy Spirit or just the Spirit. And unfortunately, the Holy Spirit doesn't get talked about in churches a whole lot. So sometimes when we see this, we go, I don't know what the deal with the Spirit is. So I want to catch us up just a little bit before we move into the questions because there are so many things that when we become believers in Christ, that the Spirit of God does in our lives. And I want us to get three things this morning that really pertain to what we're talking about. So if you'll just kind of let me catch up with some things here on the Spirit. Here's the first thing. And these are not in your notes, but if you want to try to write them down, you can. Here's what the Spirit does in our life and what Paul's really going to major on in this passage. The Spirit enters our life when we believe in Christ for salvation. When you accept Christ into your life, and you invite Him to be your Lord and your Savior, you surrender to Him, you repent of your sins, and you ask Jesus to change your life. The Spirit of God lives in you when you believe in faith for salvation. Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 39 says this. When the people heard this, meaning the message of Jesus' death and resurrection, Peter is preaching, this is the day of Pentecost. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do to be saved? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. 
And so Paul tells them, or Peter tells them rather, when you come into faith in Christ, you repent and be baptized, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So when we come into saving faith in Jesus, the Spirit comes and lives in our life. Here's the second thing that the Spirit does then. The Spirit infuses us with God's power to live as a disciple of Jesus. When the Spirit of God comes into your life, He gives you the power to live the Christ life that you can't live on your own. He infuses you with power that He literally... The Spirit of God Himself lives out through you to do what God desires to do in your life. And so here's what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 through 13. Paul writes and says, The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thought except their own spirit within them? Like, I don't know your thoughts, but you do. Your spirit inside of you knows what you're thinking, knows what you're contemplating. So he says, In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. That is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. So he says the Spirit of God infuses us with God's power, that we now know the mind and the heart of God, because the Spirit of God is whispering into our soul, here's what God wants to do. Here's what God is going to do. Here's how God's changing you. Here's what you need to think about in your life. Here's what you need to change and evaluate and look at and change in your life. The Spirit starts making changes in us because His power is infused in us. Then the third thing. The Spirit is our guarantee of eternity with God. When you come into a faith relationship with God, Ephesians 1.14 says that the Spirit becomes our guarantee of eternity with God. When God puts His Spirit inside of your life, the Bible says, and we're going to read in just a second, that that's God's guarantee that you're truly in Christ, that you have the Spirit residing in you. So listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 1. You also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. So when we get the Spirit of God, when the Spirit of God comes and lives in our life, the Bible says, when you believed, you were marked with Him like a seal. Now, in this day and time, when somebody wanted to send a letter, they didn't have the nice, pleasant-tasting thing to lick on the back of the envelope and seal it up, right? Anybody hate to lick those as much as I do? Yes. I'm also a germaphobe. I hate to open things that have been licked by somebody else. And so, use a knife, okay? And so, here's the deal, though. He says, when you came into faith in Christ, God put His Spirit in you as a seal. When they would send a letter, they would fold a thing over, and then they would pour wax on it and then stamp the wax down. So when you received the letter, you knew if anybody had tampered with it, if the wax seal had been broken. Paul says it's this way with us, that when the Spirit of God comes and lives in your life, that it's like a seal that God puts on you, that nobody tampers with it, that you're in Christ. Then he says this next thing. He's also like a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are in God's possession to the praise and glory of God. What's a deposit? If I go to the bank and I put money into the bank, what do I expect to get back out if I go the next week and ask for that same money? I want my money back, right? When you make a deposit, it's guaranteed to be there. What is it? FDIC? So we've got this guarantee from the bank, from the government. It's supposed to be there. You put money in, your money's going to be there. You can come and take it back out. It's your money. That's what God does with us. He says when you accept Christ into your life, He puts the Spirit in you as a deposit. He has deposited into you so that when you come to heaven, when you die at the end of your life, He looks at you and you say, My Life in Christ is guaranteed because the Spirit of God lives in me. I've surrendered my life to you. And your Spirit living in me is my guarantee 
of eternity. So that's what Ephesians says. You can find similar statements to that in 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22. In 2 Corinthians 5, 5, he's going to say very similar things. Now, let's get to these questions that Paul asks because they're brilliant questions. And I want us to see what he's doing to help the Galatian people find out how to live their life in Christ. The first question that Paul asks is this. And if you're taking notes again, write these in. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? He's kind of dumbfounded. You foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? I can't believe you're trying to live your life by obeying the law instead of the Spirit. Did you receive the Spirit? Did you get God's eternal reward placed in you, His guarantee, His deposit, His seal in your life, the one that gives you energy to move as God moves, the one that helps you know the mind and heart of God? Did you get that Spirit by living under the law or by believing in God by faith? Which one? And the Galatians would go, oh, you know what, that's, that's a good point. It seems like I remember Paul saying it was by grace through faith. We did that, and so that's how we got this whole thing. Good point, Paul. And so he says, you guys, you should know this. In fact, he had already answered this question in chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. Read this with me, Galatians 2, 15 and 16. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law. You're not made right with God by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. So can you get there this way? No, you can't. No one's justified by the law. Did you get the Spirit? Did you get all these things by obeying the law or by receiving what you heard and believing it? Faith. Because you've got to figure that one out. Number two, after beginning with the Spirit, after you started with the Spirit of God, are you now trying to obtain your goal by human effort? This is one of those things that just seems absurd to Paul. So when you came into this faith relationship with Jesus, and it was all about God's favor to you, He's gracious to you, He loves you, He wants to give you a gift. You receive the gift. It's by faith in Jesus. You put your faith in Jesus. Now you've received the gift, you've got faith in Jesus, everything's good, but now you're going to try to make it work for yourself under your own power by being obedient to the law? How are you going to do that? It would be like us going on an Alaskan cruise and deciding after taking a luxury liner to Alaska that to get home, we would just swim. You know what? We made it to Alaska on the ship, but we can get home by swimming the Arctic Channel, right, or whatever that body of water is over there. Okay, so you've got the ocean, the Pacific. You've got this whole big thing. It's freezing cold. You know, let's just swim that. I think I can make it on my own. And that's what he's doing. He's saying, Elizabeth, you can't do this on your own. You started in the Spirit. You can't. Get to your goal now by human effort. Your good deeds, your obedience to the law is not going to get you to Jesus. Here's the third question. He says, if you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing, and that word suffered, when we hear that, we think about pain or hardship. That's not what it means in the Greek language. The better terminology, really, the NIV translates it well. He says, have you experienced so much for nothing? In other words, have you gone through this bad experience and learned nothing from it? I mean, it seems like if you got into this place where you said, the way I make myself right with God and live in relationship to God is by obeying all the rules. Hey, kids in the room, how are you doing with following all the rules in your house? Anybody keep them all 100% all the time? I see some parents going, they're not doing real good, shaking their heads no, right? You're going, no, our kids are not being very obedient. They're not figuring it out. They're not living, they're not even following the basic rules. Like, In humanity, we didn't even do any good when there was only one rule. 
You remember Adam and Eve back in the garden? One rule, don't eat from this tree. That's it. Do anything you want except this tree. What's the next thing they do? Eat from the tree. They can't even keep that one. And Paul's going, listen, have you, have you suffered so much? Have you now started obeying the law and learned nothing from it? How are you doing keeping the law? Are you doing well? Or is it making headway to, for you? Are you getting anywhere with it? Look at your life. Is it better to live following rules or in a relationship with God who says, my grace and my mercy are sufficient for you? Which one of those two things do you want to try to do for the rest of your life? Live under God's grace through faith in Jesus or keep a lot of rules and obey the law? Because you've got to figure this out. So Paul says you've got to make some decisions about what you're going to do. And he's asking these questions. Here's the last question. He says, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? In other words, Paul's saying, listen, when God's spirit came into you, things started changing. Does God's spirit, does God give you his spirit and work miracles in you? Like your life under the changed power of Jesus is a miracle that you're not still tied to a system that's flawed but that you're tied in relationship with Jesus Christ. He says, when Jesus changed you, He gave you His Spirit and He worked miracles among you. Here's the next blank on your outline. Faith in God opens up the working of God in our daily lives. And so He asked them, does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law? Is that why God does this? You're so good at keeping the law and keeping all the rules that God goes, I'm going to give you my Spirit and work miracles among you. Or does God do that because you live in faith and you believe what you heard? Which one? And at this point, I would hope that the Galatians, and I would hope that for us, we're reading these things and going, Paul's asking some great questions. And if I'm evaluating my life, I want to make sure I'm putting myself not under obedience to rules, but under the obedience of Jesus and the authority of God. And just saying, I just want to live for you. I want to be in relationship with you. I want to know you. So I want to live this out in faith, under the grace of God. So Paul's been asking these questions, and to show them what it looks like, he finally points to one last illustration. This is where we're going to start closing up. Paul's going to look back in history. And at the next section in chapter 3, starting verse 6 and 7, uh, 6 through 9, he's going to point them back to Abraham. He's going to say, let's take an example from someone else and talk about how they lived and were made right with God through faith before the law was even given. So Galatians 3, 6 through 9, here's what Paul says. He says, so Abraham also believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham had faith, he believed, and that was what made him right with God. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. And he announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. Abraham, all nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. So here's three things we can take from that passage very fast. Number one is this. Abraham gained God's blessing because of his faith in God's promise. He was made right with God because he believed in faith, not because he kept rules. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Number two, the promise given to Abraham was for all people. He says, Abraham, you believe God, it's credited to you as righteousness. Understand then that those who live, who have faith, are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. 
Not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles. That He would do the same work with the Gentiles that He did with the Jews. If you have faith in Jesus, the gospel is announced in you, and you can advance in Abraham's line. And He says, all nations will be blessed through you. So when we think about this, the promise given to Abraham was for all people. And then the last one is this, that we are made right with God through our faith, just as Abraham was. That's how you're made right with God. That's how I'm made right with God. So if you're not a believer in Christ in the room this morning, if you're here because mom invited you, man, we're so glad you're here. Really thankful that you came to church with your mom today. But if this whole message, you're kind of going, I don't know, some of this seems to make sense, some of it's kind of sounding crazy, I don't know if I believe what you're talking about, I don't even know 100% if I understand what you're talking about, I would just say this, that when you think about this, you need to understand what makes you right with God is not what a great person you are. It's not how good you are at keeping rules. It's not how many merit badges you earned in your Boy Scouts and Eagle Scouts and Girl Scouts and how many cookies you sold, girls. It's not about any of that. It's not how many old people you help across the street. It's not about how much money you give to charities. It's not about how much money you give to the church. It's not about anything but placing your faith in Jesus for salvation. The grace of God gives us the ability to place our faith in Christ and Him alone for salvation. And that's the only way you come into a saving relationship with Jesus. So here's the last question of the day. And it's not from Paul, it's from me. If the only way we come into faith in Jesus Christ is, or come into a relationship with Jesus is through faith, why? do we so often attempt to find happiness, contentment, completion, and freedom in things outside of a relationship with Jesus? Why do you look for things to make you happy where they're going to always let you down? Why do you look for contentment and peace and happiness and joy in things that are going to leave you unfulfilled? When Jesus is standing right in front of you and Paul's saying, it's like I held up big, bold, block letters. Jesus wants to know you. Jesus wants to have a relationship with you. And He's made a way to have that relationship with Him and with His Father. To have the Spirit of God come and live inside of you and change you from the inside out. Little by little over time, He's going to change you and work in your life. So why are you trying to get fixed from something that's not Jesus? Has it ever worked for you? Have you ever gotten to a place where you said, I think I'm better now? Or do you constantly look at your life and say, I thought that would make me happy, but I very much feel unfulfilled. I need something else. What's the next fix? What's the next thing to chase? What's the next pursuit? Jesus is standing right in front of you, saying, I'll embrace you. I'll love you. I'll take you in. I'll give you my spirit. And He'll change you from the inside out. Little by little over time, He'll make an impact and He'll change you. What I love about Paul is that when he saw the Galatians struggling, he didn't just abandon them. He didn't say, man, that sucks that they believe something that stupid. I guess I'll just not pay attention to them anymore. I'll write a letter to the Corinthians now. He goes, I've got to write them. I've got to chase them. I've got to pursue them. They're living in a false reality. They've believed a counterfeit gospel but I'm not going to give up on them. I'm going to go after them. It's very much like what a parent would do when they see their kid going down a road that's a wrong path and saying, I can't just let you go because I love you. I'm going to chase you. I'm going to hound you. It would look a lot like the story that we're about to watch from the perspective of a a daughter who talks about her mother 
And when she was going down a wrong path, her mom would not give up. Check this out. Jesus said to her, Where are your accusers? 
And she said, there are none. And he looked at her and he said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Shortly after that story, church was over. I had a wonderful lunch with my family. And I had the happiest mother in the whole wide world. That evening, I was meeting some friends out for drinks. When I got ready to walk into the club where we were meeting, I remember stretching out my hand to get the door. And when I did, ten words raced across my mind. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I tried to make light of it and just kind of brush it off as, yeah, that's what Jesus said to the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. I went in, I ordered my first drink, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. That night when I was putting my head on my pillow, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. The next day, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. Those ten words ran through my head over and over again. I thought about that poor woman and the mess that she was in. Jesus knew all about her sin. Evidently, the townspeople did too. They wanted to stone her. Jesus wanted to forgive her. Then it dawned on me. I was just like her. I had been caught in the act of sin and self. I needed to be forgiven. Jesus was giving me that same opportunity that he gave to that woman. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. In the darkness of my room, stumbling with words, I remember praying and saying, Jesus, you know. You know all about these last seven years. You know the sin. You know the shame. You know. And if you're willing to forgive me, if you're willing to not condemn me, then I'll do my best to go and sin no more. I committed my life to the Lord that night in my room, and He changed my life. I probably celebrate Mother's Day a little bit differently than most. I celebrate being a mom. I celebrate a woman who invited me to church on Mother's Day over and over again until I decided to go. I went as a gift to her, but I came away with the best gift I'd ever been given. I celebrate Mother's Day because that day changed my life. So this morning, I don't know where you stand, but I can tell you this, that just like Debbie and her story, Jesus knows everything about you. He knows every detail. He knows everything that you've done in your life. Some of you, that may be terrifying to think about, but here's the great part of it. It doesn't matter what you've done in your life. Jesus stands with the same message for you today that he stood for the woman who was caught in adultery and to Debbie. Go and leave your life of sin. 
I don't condemn you. Jesus is standing today with arms wide open, ready to embrace you, ready to love you, and ready to help you change, to be the person that He created you to be, to be the person that He desires for you to be, and to know Him with intimacy and fullness of heart. And it's not about coming and making a show here at an altar. It's not about specifically having to talk to me. It's not about saying any kind of specific prayer. It's not anything. It's just like Debbie said. She just went home. And when she laid her head on her pillow that night, she just started talking to God and saying, You know it all. And I'm tired of living this kind of lifestyle. If you'll forgive me, I'll follow you. You have to come to a place in your life that you know you would say something similar to that to God. To just say, I'm, I'm, tired, I'm, I'm tired of trying to do things my way. I'm tired of trying to make it on my own and do it the way I think or to earn your love somehow or to be good enough. I just want your forgiveness. And I want your love. And I'll follow you from here on out. Leave your life of sin. It doesn't mean you're never going to sin again. But it means that you're going to stop sinful patterns and behavior because the Spirit of God working in you is going to change you. So today may be the day that when you leave here, that you just have some moments with God, that He brings some things back to your mind and your heart from today. And you just say, God, if you'll take me, I'll live for you forever. That's our offer to you today. To start a journey with Jesus Christ. And to know Him. To be loved by Him. We love you. Thanks for celebrating Mother's Day with us. And we hope you have a great day. Thank you.